0: Hebrews chapter 3. I want to remind you guys that I make my sermon notes available online before you come to church in the mornings. So everything that I'm teaching is in my sermon notes. We post it at our website, realitycarp.com. And it's available there. Glenn's got his. Glenn's got his. Okay, she's got her. All right, all right. Oh, wow, a bunch of you have those. Great. So uh, would you guys attest that it helps you as you're following along in the sermon? You don't have to write everything down. It's already written down for you. And then you could write down what the Lord is speaking to your heart prophetically. Glenn's giving it a thumbs up, and he's been around the block a few times. So praise God, he knows. And so I encourage you guys to go before you come to church and download the notes from the website, print them out. I think it'll help you to retain, because I've been told that the sermons have a lot of stuff in them, and so I think it'll help you to retain some of that stuff, whatever that might be. So Hebrews chapter 3, let's read a couple verses here and get into it. Let's start reading in verse 12. Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, take care, brethren. Lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is in front of us. We believe it to be the very word of God the eternal, timeless, unchanging Word of God, and yet the Word of God that is living and active and prophetic and speaking to us at this moment. And Lord, we don't want our hearts to miss anything that you have to say to us. And so we ask right now, Holy Spirit, for a softening of our hearts anywhere that's hard, anywhere that's callous, Lord, anywhere that is on its heels and in a defensive posture right now because of sin, we ask that you would mellow our hearts in your presence and yet make them incredibly alert. We let our guards down and we would trust you, Lord, to speak into our lives as a God who is kind and good and all-wise. And teach us to diligently watch over our hearts. We live in a world, Lord, that is so contrary to you. Even our state this week in the Supreme Court and their decisions. We're living in a time that is so contrary to you, Lord. And you've called us to be your people, your ambassadors, your representatives. And so we need your instruction. We need your warnings and your admonishment and your teaching. We need to be corrected and trained. We need to be prepared for every good work that you had set before us. So, Holy Spirit, come and speak to your precious people gathered here. Let this time be incredibly fruitful. Please help me to communicate your truths in a way that honors you, Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, last week in chapter 3, we were talking about the need to cultivate a heart that says yes to God. The need to cultivate a heart that says yes to God. The goal of the Christian life is to be ever increasingly saying yes to the Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And what his word has to say and the way that he's leading and the way that he's moving in our community, in our state, in our nation, and in the nations. We want to have a heart that is soft, yielded, receptive, and is ready to say yes to the Lord in the issues of life, realizing that the more we say no to the Lord, and we all do, we all do in one way or another, to one degree or another, we all say no to the Lord on certain issues. We don't always know it because of the deceitfulness of sin, and we'll discuss that in a bit. But what we want to avoid is saying no to the Lord, because the more we say no to the Lord, the harder our hearts become. Every time you say no, whether it's in an action or a leading or whatever it might be, there's a callousing that happens to the heart and a searing that happens to the conscience. And it's a dangerous road to begin to go down, to have your heart dulled toward the things of God and the voice of God. We want to cultivate a heart that is active and listening and proactive and yielded and ready to say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, in whatever he is leading. When we continually say no to the Lord, our perspective becomes distorted. You see, there's clarity in obedience. Obedience. I'm going to need a witness or two. There is clarity in obedience. When you are obeying the Lord, things become so clear. When we're walking in rebellion and disobedience, so, things are so easily clouded and, and undiscernible and messed up and weird. There is clarity in obedience. But when we say no to the Lord, our perspective often becomes distorted and extremely so. The example we had last week was from Numbers chapter 14, you'll remember. When Moses had led the children of Israel to Kadesh Barnea, that border town on the promised land, the land of Canaan, and God's will was to bring the children of Israel into the place of fullness, into the place of blessing, into the place where they could dwell in security and in the will of God. But they were lacking faith, and because of their lack of faith, they were disobedient. And in their disobedience, saying, no, Lord, we don't think we could do it. We know you said you would do thus and so and bring us into this and that place. But we're having a hard time laying a hold of that by faith. And so we're not going to do it because of their disobedience and their lack of faith. Their perspective was absolutely insane. You remember the passage that we read last week, Numbers 14, starting in verse 2. We have it on the PowerPoint. It says, And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, We wish that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we would have just died in the wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this place anyway? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our kids would have, will be plunder, and it would have been better for us to just go to Egypt. So they said to one another, Let's get a new leader and go back to Egypt. That is absolute insanity. We are not talking about a godless pagan people here. We're talking about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes those who knew God we're talking about the ones who saw the mighty hand of God in bringing them out of Egypt who saw the mighty hand of God in parting the Red Sea who saw the mighty presence of God at Mount Sinai who were led by the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day those who had were provided water and manna in the wilderness they had seen the presence of God the power of God the provision of God and the work of God but in the moment of decision where the rubber meets the road in that pillar a life, a moment. They didn't obey. They had been cultivating a heart that said no to the Lord throughout the Exodus experience. Ten times now, this is really the tenth, nine previous times, they had said no to the Lord. And that just worked in them a really hard heart and a distorted perspective. They weren't seeing things clearly. And this happens to us. And the thing is, we don't even realize it. They didn't think they were insane at this moment, but they were completely out to lunch. But what they were doing made perfect sense to them. It seemed justifiable. It seemed rational. It seemed reasonable to them. It made sense to them. It simply wasn't what God said to do and we find ourselves in this place, and this is when we get in trouble. This is when we make a mess of life, and we make big messes. We make messes that cost the well-being of children, as this one did. We make messes that cost marriages. We make messes that cause roots of bitterness to spring up and all sorts of division and anger and wrath and malice and hurtfulness and all these things. Because our hearts aren't soft, yielded, active toward the Lord, ready to say yes, we get a distorted perspective and the nature of sin is such that it is deceitful and we don't even know it. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, we must keep ourselves immersed in the word of God and the community of God. We must keep ourselves immersed in the word of God and in the community of God because in the word of God, there is truth. And in the community of God, there is encouragement and accountability. And when our our perspective is skewed and distorted, we need the truth of the word by the power of the spirit to rattle us to our senses. And we need the brothers and sisters who are committed to the Christian community, the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones. We need the brothers and sisters to come alongside us and say, Hey, bro, you are not thinking clear on this issue. Don't do that. We need, every one of us needs people to come alongside and say that. And, and what we realize is the depth of the sin of Numbers 14. That it was an incredible insult to the Lord God of the universe that they were saying, we don't think you could get us to the end. Thus far you've gotten us. We'll give you that. We set up the Ebenezer and all that. Thus far you've gotten us. But we don't, we're not sure that you can deal with the giants in the land or the fortified cities or the iron chariots, Lord. Hey, God is all about dealing with those. God is all about dealing with the giants in your land. And the fortresses in your land that ought not to be there. And the iron chariots that are raging against you according to the forces of hell. God is all about giving you the victory in and over and through those things. He's all about that. And it was such an insult to the living God to not believe that. And yet God is so kind. He forgave them. Moses said, Lord... You know these cats. <laughs> I mean, you've seen these guys, Lord. Will you forgive them? The Lord said, yeah, I'll forgive them. But as we've mentioned in the last couple weeks, forgiveness doesn't fix everything. It deals with the eternal consequences, but it does not necessarily relieve us of the temporal consequences. And there were temporal consequences for them. That generation would not be allowed to enter into the land. The place of rest, the place of promise, the place of fullness, the place of blessing and of peace and of being in God's will. They would not be allowed to enter, and they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They would toil, and they would die. There were dire consequences. And we need to remind ourselves of these things because we make big decisions so flippantly. We give up too soon on relationships that we ought not to give up. We give ourselves over to anger that we ought not to give into. We go too far in that behavior that we ought to refrain from. And we've got to remember That sin has temporal consequences. And God is good and merciful and faithful and will forgive us every sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But we are the body of Christ. And we are interconnected. And my sin affects you. And your sin affects me. And that's a design by God that we might be mutually accountable and careful in how we live. Cultivating a heart that says yes to God is the best way to keep yourself out of trouble and messes. Anybody out here ever made a mess in their life? (laughs) Cultivating a heart that says yes to God is the best way to keep out of those messes. Verse 15 reminds us of this. Verse 15 of Hebrews 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they, referring to that Kadesh Barnea, that Numbers 14 generation, as when they provoked me. If you hear his voice, the protocol is just obey. (laughs) Just do it. Just deal with it. Be doers of the word. Don't harden your heart against it. There's almost always a battle, right? Romans 7, Paul says, I know the right thing to do. It's not that I don't know. I know the right thing to do. And really, in my redeemed self, I want to do the right thing. But I find that there's this battle being waged in the members of my flesh. Galatians 5, Paul said it like this. The flesh wages war against the spirit. And if you've been cultivating the carnal life, then the flesh is going to win. Because you've allowed your spiritual man to become emaciated. But if we're feeding the spiritual man or woman, and we are spiritually strong by cultivating intimacy with Jesus Christ, then in the battle, in the heat of the moment, in the moment of decision, where the rubber meets the road, we can walk in victory. We can walk in victory, and that's God's will for you. It's not live a life of defeat, but a life of victory in Christ Jesus. We're more than conquerors. And so there's always this battle that unfolds when God is telling you, what and how to do concerning the right thing. Be like Daniel in Daniel chapter 1 who purposed in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself with the things that the king offered him. He purposed in his heart beforehand, before he got in the situation. He said, I'm already gonna decide, should I be in this situation? I'm already gonna decide to do the right thing. At one point in my life when I was struggling with sin, uh, my wife, she wasn't my wife then, she was just my girlfriend, Kate, she said to me, Look, here's what you do. First of all, identify what you struggle with and then search the scriptures for passages that deal with that issue and then memorize them. And then when you're in the moment of temptation, pull out that sword of the spirit and use it and get the victory. Gosh, my wife, she rips. (laughs) It, It changed my life. It changed my life. Oh, really? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Okay, know what I struggle with. See what the word of God has to say to that. Hide the word of God in my heart that I might not sin against him, the psalmist said in Psalm 119. That works. (laughs) Call me naive, but that works. By the power of the Holy Spirit, that works. Now, In verses 16 through 18, we're going to come back to 12 and 13, but in in 16 through 18, he he poses a series of questions, rhetorical questions, and and answers them, and there's a point to each one that that lend to what we're speaking about. So verse 16 says, uh, For who provoked God when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by, by Moses? In other words, the point is this. Everyone who died in the wilderness had begun in the glorious exodus. Everyone that died in the wilderness had begun in the glorious exodus. They all at one time had great expectation and experienced a great move of God. But they ended up in disobedience and moving away from God. In other words, the thing he's trying to highlight here is they were those who started well but finished poorly. And Christendom and Christian history is littered with men and women such as these who started well and finished poorly. It's in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You can find a bunch of them. (laughs) And it's common to our experience, starting well and finishing poorly. That doesn't have to be the Christian experience. It shouldn't be the Christian experience. And so he's reminding them to be on guard that even the Exodus generation Who walked through the Red Sea. Who saw the presence of God at Sinai. Who tasted the manna. Who experienced the presence of God at the rock when the water came forth. Even these finished poorly. So take heed if any man thinks he is strong, lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10 says. And then verse 17 And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? In other words, those ones who angered God were those who refused to believe in God. That that was a pivotal issue. They weren't trusting God for the big things in their life. It was a lack of faith issue. Lack of faith is always a sin. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. God is cool. He knows we struggle with it. That's why he was totally stoked when the disciples said, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. He'll always answer that prayer. That's a prayer that I pray often. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And unbelief is just the greatest insult to a God who has proven himself faithful. Please remember that his past record is our future assurance. And he has been absolutely faithful and will be in the future. Verse 18 And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Simply saying here, the point being that unbelief leads to bad actions. It always does. That lack of faith. Oftentimes that lack of faith is manifest in taking a situation into our own hands. Anybody ever done that? It's the proverbial proverbial Ishmael. Taking things into our own hands. Lord, I know you said that you would give me um, Isaac Uh, But quite frankly, it's been 11 years since you promised that. Now, Lord, I was 75. (laughs) I was 75 when you said I would have a son. I'm now 86. And my wife, Sarah, is not exactly a spring chicken anymore. (laughs) So I'm going to help you out, Lord. And he had a relationship with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, and birthed Ishmael. The proverbial case of taking things into his own hands instead of just letting the Lord finish the work He began. Philippians one six says, "God is faithful to complete the work He's begun in you." He gave up too soon on God. That happens so often. He gave up and he gave it and he took the situation into his own hand. He made a mess. And he said, "Lord, how about how about just being cool with my mess?" <laughs> Anybody ever done that? Okay, Lord, I, I see that I blew it, but can you just be cool on this one a little bit, kind of maybe? This is literally what he said. Well, that's a paraphrase, but that's, that's pretty close to what he said. He said this. He said, Oh, Lord, this is literal. Oh, Lord, that Ishmael may live before you. In other words, I know this isn't what you have planned. I know this was wrong, and I took things into my own hands, but can you work with this? And Lord said, No. No. I told you that I would give you a son at the appointed time. And it's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. Now the Lord is good and gracious and he did some things with Ishmael, but thousands of years of conflict have ensued between Ishmael and Isaac. There was dire consequences for taking the situation into his own hands. The progression for Israel was this. It went from hope to disbelief to disobedience. That's the pattern of not finishing well. Hope to disbelief, to disobedience. And to counteract that, we must cultivate a heart that says yes to God. And now that's the point of verse 12. Let's deal with verse 12. It says, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an, un- an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, and falling away from the living God. Notice that it starts with the words take care. The Greek word there is blepo. That's kind of a fun Greek word, right? There's one you could remember, blepo. That's a fun one to say. It literally means just see or look or, or watch. There's other words for that, but this is a particular one. Now you can walk around and say, hey, blepo. And someone that knows biblical Greek will be like, what, what, what? Anyway, literally, it's blepo, but the idea here is translated correctly, take care. The idea is, look, look at this, pay special attention to this, look at this very closely, consider this carefully and take note, be purposeful about this, okay? Take care. Be purposeful about this. Consider this carefully. Pay especially close attention to whatever it is comes next. So what are we to take care about? The spiritual condition of our hearts. We're to be very purposeful in watching out concerning the condition of our hearts. You as a Christian cannot just be haphazard about your spiritual condition. You've got to be proactive about your spiritual condition. We are living in a world that is anti Christ, yet, we have every tool we need to live for Christ. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 says, We've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. We have everything that we need to live godly lives amongst a wicked and perverse generation. But if you don't pursue godliness with those who call upon God with a pure heart, if you don't pursue it, then the flow of this world will drag you away. The flow of this world, which is in opposition, will pull you in the opposite direction. So we need to take care, think about, be purposeful about the condition of our hearts. Now, I think we all understand this intuitively, but let me just be clear. When the Bible uses the word heart here, it's referring to the seat of the will, uh, the intellect the emotions, the very core of our being. I think we all know what we're talking about. We say, oh, my heart is overwhelmed. It's not the, the muscle that's <laughs> here underneath your you know, sternum. That's not what we're talking about. It, it, even though, weird, huh? We sometimes feel it there, weird. But anyway, it's, uh, it, it's the core of our emotions, of our intellect, importantly, of our will is what's being addressed here, meaning, when the Bible talks about the heart, the core of the uh, intellect and the will and the motions, meaning this is the part of the person that God speaks to and directs. This is the part of the person that God speaks to and directs. And so it is the place from which the actions of life flow. Jesus was very clear in Matthew 15, Luke 6 and other places saying, the things that come out of your mouth Are the overflow of your heart. That's always a real check for me. Things that come out of your mouth, that's actually what's in your heart. That's why when you say something, you can't be like, oh, that's not what I meant. No, that's exactly what you meant. And and Jesus said that adultery, fornication, theft, murder, envy, malice, anger, wrath, that these things come from the heart. So so the heart, the seat of the will, the intellect, the emotions, this is the place where the issues of life, the actions of life come from. So if this place is sensitive to the word of God and the voice of God and the leading of God, then good things will flow forth in our lives. You want to keep that place sensitive and yielded and saying yes to God, and then our lives will bear good fruit. A parallel passage is Proverbs 4:23, very famous. It says, "Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life." It's not apparent in this English translation, but in the Hebrew, that verse starts with the words or the phrase "above all else." Same idea as take care In other words, of very first importance. If you're going to do anything right, do this right. Watch out over the condition of your heart, is what it's saying. Above all else, watch over your heart with all diligence. Now, diligence means careful and persistent work and effort. It's not lackadaisical, it's not whenever or whatever. It's purposeful, it's engaged, it has direction, it's going after. Diligence means careful and persistent work. Careful and persistent, careful and persistent, continually watching over the condition of our hearts. When it comes to the core of who we are, that place that drives our feelings, our thought processes and our attitudes we cannot let down our guards. Not in this culture. We can't let our guards down. Not for a moment. And so, I think, you know, I've been thinking about this. It's kind of hard to put your finger on. I mean, read your Bible and pray, yeah, for sure. But I think watching over our hearts, it means being very careful about what these take in and what these take in what we're seeing, and what we're hearing. I think that's a huge component of it. I think it's pivotal. And we are so challenged in this area. With television and the internet, if you just want to stop right there, man, we need every moment of the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be so saturated in the word of God and we need to so marinate in the presence of God because these anti-Christ cultural messages are bombarding us 24-7, 365 from every single direction, are they not? It's radical. And here's something that's simple logic. Take it for what it's worth. Whatever you allow in the most is going to have the greatest influence in your life. Seems like a no-brainer. So, I mean, if we want to break it down and really bum some of you out, (laughs) if you spend more time watching TV than you do with the Word of God, you'll be more influenced by TV. If you spend more time with the secular media, Movies? You'll be more like those things portrayed in those films than like Christ. Right? I think so. At least that's how it worked in my life. That's why 13 years ago I got rid of my TV. I couldn't handle it. I'm too weak of a man. I saw too much of what I saw there in me. I wanted to see more of Christ in me. I wanted to be more like him. So got rid of the TV. It's just about the best thing I ever did. I'm not putting that on you. I'm not tripping out on you. I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm testifying what God did in my life. And I think it holds true that whatever is your primary influence, that's what you're most going to be like. Therefore, that's going to be the outflow of your life. It amazes me. It amazes me that in our culture, Christians now, I'm not talking about the unredeemed, Christians have no problem watching the Lord of the Rings for seven million hours. How long is that stinking movie? It should have ended like 90 times. Especially the last one. So stupid. It just, on and on and on. But Christians watch it over and over and over and over and over. They got no problem watching movies for two or three hours, but you give them a sermon that's an hour and five minutes and they are cutting their eyeballs out. That was just the most heinous thing I could think of. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Something has gone awry there, I think. No idea where I'm at in my notes. Yeah, whatever. Okay, so. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. From it flow the springs of life. In other words, as your heart goes, so your life will go. Jesus said it this way, where your heart is, or where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Okay? And so we need to watch out for an uh, an evil and unbelieving heart, as it says in verse 12. Now, we do realize, praise the Lord, that as Christians, we've been given new hearts, right? Right? That's part of the new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah 31. We've been given new identities. We are new creations. We've been given brand new hearts. So what we need to do now is watch over and maintain that heart and to guard that heart against detrimental influences as we've been speaking about and to guard that heart against unbelief. See what it says here? Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. An unbelieving heart. We, we need to make sure that in our heart of hearts and in the daily grind, we are trusting the Lord. Lest we slowly find ourselves drifting. And remember, the thing about drifting is it's almost imperceivable. It's almost imperceivable. That's why it's called drifting. You're just drifting along with the flow. When it finally becomes obvious is when the storm hits. When the storms of life hit, and you're looking for the anchor, and you realize, I've gotten out of the anchorage. Christ is the anchor. I'm out of the anchorage. I'm out of the place of safety. I'm out of the place I need to be. And, and at that point, it, we, our, our perspective is so skewed. And we're lacking so much clarity in our hearts. have become so hard that we're not able to weather those storms very well. And those are the pivotal moments where we make those bad decisions. So you've got to keep hold of the anchor, the anchor of our soul, Jesus Christ, and guard against unbelief, which you don't wake up one morning and say, I don't believe in God anymore. It doesn't happen that way. But really, we're talking about little areas where we stop trusting Him, stop being yielded to Him. Mistrust or distrust is a form or a facet of disbelief. Trusting the Lord with the minutia of our life. And we're gonna have to trust the Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts where we're doing that as individuals. where We're withholding trust, whether it be uh, the future of our job or our kids or God's ability to reconcile our marriage or reconcile our, our family issues or whatever it is. We need to see and make sure we're trusting the Lord because as it says here in verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. This verse very simply says that as we are saved by grace through faith, we also must continue in faith. That's a no brainer. In the Christian life, you must continue in faith. And if we're going to continue in faith in an Antichrist culture, we're going to have to cultivate faith on a daily basis. You see? Got to cultivate faith on a daily basis. If we let it slip day by day, we develop that hardness of heart, which leads to unbelief in certain areas, which leads to disobedience, which leads to bad things. Um, now let's look at verse thirteen, last verse that we'll deal with. Verse thirteen says but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, in verse 12, we had sort of the individual approach. We're told as individuals to watch over our own hearts. Take care, brethren, unless there be in any one of you an unbelieving and evil heart. So, so we, we have a responsibility to watch over our own hearts. But now there comes, and I love this, there comes a communal responsibility There comes the interconnectivity of the community of Christ, of the body of Christ. Now we're charged with caring for each other. That is a core component of Christianity. You cannot escape that. We are charged with caring for one another. That is part of what it means to be in the church, the church universal to be believers in Jesus Christ who are connected by relationship with him to one another and so worship him and love one another. And a facet of that love is caring. And so it says here, speaking of this community again, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, This idea of encouraging one another. Three quick points on this. Encouraging one another. Number one, it's mutual. Okay, it says one another. It's mutual. You need to be willing to encourage and to be encouraged. To exhort and be exhorted. To warn and to be warned. To admonish and to be admonished. To rebuke and to be rebuked. To correct and to be corrected to train and to be trained. It is mutual. The idea here is accountability. And that is a core design of the Christian family is that we are to be accountable to one another, be subject to one another in the fear of It as in Ephesians. Every one of us has a responsibility to make ourselves accountable and to be receptive. Okay, this is lost on a lot of people. Not many people actually do this. We must do this. Every one of us must engage ourselves in relationships which require us to become accountable for our actions, for our thought processes, for what is flowing forth from our life. If you're a Christian, you must be accountable. Now, the unredeemed man and the sin nature hates accountability. Because the sin nature wants to do what it wants to do. And when I want to do it and how I want to do it, I'm going to do it my way. Most satanic song ever sang in the 50s. (laughs) That's not Christianity. Christians are called to be accountable one to another. Therefore, every Christian has the responsibility placed upon themselves to make themselves accountable to somebody else and you're only as accountable as you want to be. So you need to want to be accountable, which means you need to want to obey the word of God, which means you need to have a receptive heart. You need to be able to receive correction, warning, rebuke. If you're one of those people, and there's a lot of us, if you're one of those people that your first reaction is defensiveness, there's a reason for that, I understand. something happened in your past, you were berated as a child or in your marriage or at a school or, or whatever. I understand that, okay? But Christianity removes those crutches, okay? Christianity frees us from the excuses of life. In Christianity, we can't just say anymore, well, this happened to me when I was a kid. Okay, I understand that. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, now we can get beyond that. So if you're one of those people who are immediately and intuitively defensive, when somebody approaches you with an issue in your life, you need to deal with that. That is wrong. That is sin. That is proud. That is arrogant. That is destructive. We need to cultivate hearts that are receptive. We must do this. And and so now every Christian has got to get themselves in a relationship of transparency and humility where someone else looks at your life, knows your life is familiar with your life, and can speak into your life. Okay, someone other than your spouse. Hello? (laughs) Because a lot of the issues are going to need to be spoken into your life or the way that you're dealing with your spouse, your funky attitudes or whatever it is. So my wife holds me accountable big time. But then I have other people in my life that hold me accountable too. Pastor G is one of those ones who knows everything about my life, knows the ins and outs. I can't hide a single thing from him. He knows how my marriage is doing on any given day. He knows how my devotional life is going. He knows how my prayer life is. We need to have people like that in our lives to stay safe, to walk in victory, to walk in health, to maintain uh, Christian unity. We've got to cultivate that. Got to pursue that. Nobody can do that for you. Get in an accountability group. If you're a man, come to the men's meetings here 6 a.m., Wednesday mornings. Get in an accountability group. If you don't have another one, we'll we'll connect you. There's also one in Ventura, 6 a.m. Get in a home group. Grab the person next to you and say, you want to start meeting once a week and be accountable? I'll just tell you all my junk and (laughs) you tell me all yours and (laughs) we'll help each other grow. It's absolutely imperative. It's absolutely imperative to the Christian life. So this encouraging of one another is mutual. It speaks of mutual accountability. Secondly, it is immediate, meaning it's needed right now and it has to continue all the time. That's why it says day after day as long as it is called today. This mutual accountability, this encouraging of one another is an ongoing continually needed process. Thirdly, it is urgent. Encourage one another lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. So it is urgent. Now, the word encourage here, in the Greek, it is parakaleo. Parakaleo. Um, the The noun form of that word is used to speak of the Holy Spirit. Parakletos. Meaning, literally, one who comes alongside. Or helper. Or as is sometimes translated, not wonderfully, comforter but it's one who comes alongside you who helps you, the Holy Spirit, parakletos. When it says encourage one another, it's the verb 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 form of the word, parakleto, meaning call somebody alongside you or come alongside somebody. Get involved in their life, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, and walk toward the goal of Jesus Christ. That's what that means. That's what we're called to do. To encourage, and there's a lot of facets to that calling along one side. Encouraging, exhorting, warning, admonishing, rebuking, correcting, training, calling it like it is. What we do not mean is for you to become a sin sniffer. (laughs) Now, we have those in the church. Every church has them, to be sure. They're just sin sniffers. They just, oh. Oh. Oh, oh. You, they just, they're just looking for sin all the time and their nose is just trained for it. And so they just sniff it out and they point it out and they're usually legalistic and mean and arrogant and wrong. They're here. We're not talking about being sin sniffers. We're talking about mutual accountability, a relationship of humility that says, I need help and you need help. Let's help each other by the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God to walk right. Absolutely imperative to the Christian life. If you don't do that in your Christian life, you will have a Christianity which is stunted, truncated, incomplete. You minimize your growth. In relationships of accountability, you maximize your growth. Now, the reason we do this, it says there, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The whole chapter of chapter 3 is a warning about our hearts becoming hard. And last week we saw that in the Old Testament, the root of the problem for the hard hearts of Israel was grumbling and complaining and unbelieving. Remember that? The root of the problem was that they had attitudes of grumbling and complaining all the time, so detrimental. And that grumbling and complaining attitude cultivated disbelief. And remember last week we looked at Exodus 17, that little vignette there where they said, We don't have any water and we're bummed out of you, Moses, and what's the deal? And the end result was they said in verse 7 of Exodus 17, Is the Lord among us or not? In other words, I don't even think God's working in my life. Where is God? God, do you even care? That attitude that Martha had. Lord, do you even care? Tell Mary to help me. You can't say, Lord, and do you even care in the same sentence. It's like an oxymoron of sorts. It doesn't work. He's the Lord. He cares. He's infinitely and intimately concerned with our comings and goings. But they were saying, is the Lord even with us? Hello, you idiots. If this happened during the daytime, look at the pillar of the cloud. Night, look at the pillar of fire. Remember Sinai. Remember the Red Sea. Remember the plagues. Is the Lord even among us? You see, but the grumbling, complaining attitude clouded their perspective and they just didn't see things in the right way anymore. This complaining and unbelieving attitude early on in the Exodus experience of Israel ultimately led to an unbelief that kept them from experiencing God's goal and God's promises of the land of Canaan. It started with a little grumbling, a little complaining, led to disbelief, led to disobedience, led to a complete missing out on everything God had for them. Now, it says here that we need to be in accountable relationships lest any one of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin hardens our hearts. Nail this into your brain. Sin is deceitful, always deceitful. It is deceitful in its approach and it is deceitful in its end. Sin is deceitful in its approach. Doesn't it say in 2 Corinthians that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light? It is deceitful in its approach and it is deceitful in its end. Here's a quote from a guy named Albert Barnes who's got a great little commentary set on the Bible. He said, If sin was always seen in its true aspect when man is tempted to commit it, it would be so hateful that he would flee from it with the utmost aberrance. Read it again because it's cool. If sin was always seen in its true aspect when man is tempted to commit it, it would be so hateful that he would flee from it with the utmost aberrance. You see, usually in the moment of temptation, we're not seen too clearly. If we are, it would only be a moment and nothing more. Whoa, I'm out of here. And if we saw sin for what it was, we would run from it. If we saw the end result of broken lives and broken marriages and maimed people and abortions and all these things, if we saw the end result of sin, we would run from it. But it's deceptive. And so we engage with it. And so we've got to be very aware, very sharply trained in the Word of God. Very intensely involved in the word of God. lest we fall to the deceitfulness of sin. And the effects of sin are so radical. Wonderfully illustrated in the life of Samson, or horribly illustrated, really. Um, look what it says about Samson in Judges 16.21. We have it on the PowerPoint. It says, Then the Philistine sees Samson and gouged out his eyes, And they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in prison. Okay, Samson got in this problem because he he had an issue with lust. And he gave in to lust over and over again. Okay? If you don't know the story, go read it. But the end result is this, that he fell prey to the Philistines. They gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains and then they put him in prison where he was a grinder. So the effect of Samson's sin, which was lust, was such that he was blinded, bound, and became a grinder. We see here the blinding, binding, grinding effects of sin. That is what sin does in our lives. It blinds us. It binds us. We get bound up in it. And it just grinds at us day after day. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I know what I'm talking about. Sin distorts perspective, revokes freedom, and yields frustration. But it never, ever presents itself that way. It never comes to you and says, I'm gonna blind you, I'm gonna tie you up, and I'm gonna grind you. It never says. It's incredibly deceitful. And so now, because of Christian unity and love, every Christian should feel that he or she has an interest in keeping his or her brother or sister from such doom. And each Christian in such danger should be willing to listen to the exhortation of another. We need to begin to feel a sense of responsibility for each other and accountability to one another. And we've got to be willing to give and receive. And we've got to position ourselves to be accountable. Make yourself accountable. Let somebody look into your life. Because if not, we'll be deceived. And we end up in that blinding, binding, grinding thing. Sin is deceitful in the sense that it casts doubt on God's word. Always cast doubts on God's word. Genesis 3.1, the serpent came to Eve and said, did God really say? So much of the modern church is doing this. Does God really mean that? Did God really say? Should we really take that literally? I mean, isn't that old and isn't that outdated? This is very popular in the modern church. Sin is deceitful in that it always doubts God's word. The first temptation was when Satan said to Eve, Did God really mean that? Be aware of this. This is prevalent in culture today. God didn't really mean what he said about that. I think God means what he means. Sin is deceitful, number two, because it distorts our perspective and clouds the truth. Just like those cats at Kadesh Barnea who were like, you know what? We were better off in slavery. Let's go back to Egypt. We were better off when we were slaves there. Number three, sin is deceitful because it often appears attractive and fulfilling. It often appears to be just what we need at the moment to get us through. That's what happened with Eve. Again, the temptation of Eve by Satan in Genesis 3 6. It says, When Eve saw that the fruit was good to eat and delightful to the eyes and good for making one wise, she took and she ate of it. It seemed to be just what she needed at the moment. It seemed to be wonderful. Sin is deceitful. Lastly, Sin is deceitful in the sense that it promises what it can't deliver and it delivers what we don't expect. It promises what it can't deliver. In other words, the Kadesh Barnea generation, they were thinking, hey, we'll be better off if we don't go into the promised land. That was a temptation. There was no deliverance on that. And then it delivers what we don't expect. In Numbers 14 verse 45, they realize their sin And they said, hey, God, okay, 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 we'll go into the promised land. And God said, hey, no, dude, I'm done with you. No, I'm done with you. And they said, well, we'll we'll go in anyway, and we'll just kind of make it happen. Here what they're trying to do is minimize the effects of the consequences of their sin by their own ingenuity. And so they took up their little arms, and they ran into the land of Canaan, and they got slaughtered. It says in the NASB, they were beat down. Sin promises what it can't deliver and it delivers what we don't expect, a serious beat down. And it quickly leads to a hardened heart and ultimately leads to unbelief if not repented of. That's why it says there we need to watch out lest we find ourselves falling away from the living God. And verse 19 says, and so we see that they, that Exodus generation, were not able to enter because of Unbelief. So let's commit as a family of faith to watch over one another's hearts, to become accountable, transparent, pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and hope with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for this warning today. Help us to heed it. Lord, I, I, you've you scared the pants off me, Lord. I hope some of us are, are, are afraid to sin. We ought to be. It's horribly destructive, and it's just plain wrong before you. And so, Lord, while you've got attention of our hearts, do a work by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we really believe in your ability to deliver. We really believe that you are an able deliverer, that there's no sin that has us bound that we can't overcome by the power of your Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. Help us to believe that and to pursue that and then work that in our lives. Lord, I know that many of us in here are in bondage to all sorts of sin and you're the deliverer and you said you were so we're gonna put the weight of it back on you, Lord. We need to be delivered. We need to be set free. We made the mess ourselves but we're coming to the throne of grace that we might receive help in this time of need. Help us, Lord, to overcome, to be more than conquerors to walk in freedom and a victory teach us to watch over our hearts with all diligence show us what influences need to go and teach us to pursue you Lord please brothers and sisters whom I love prayer team will be up here today there's no problem it's too big for God if there's giants in your land come and get prayer let them lay hands on you let them pray for you fortresses built up in your heart that ought not to be there If it seems as though the forces of hell are chasing after you in iron chariots, come and get prayer today. Our God is a deliverer. Communion is here to celebrate the power of the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ, to remember how faithful he is in paying for our sins and delivering us from the power of it.